Hi, this is Perry Marshall. You're listening to a free, highly abridged version of Evolution 2.0, Breaking the Deadlock Between Darwin and Design. The full, unabridged version is available on Audible and Amazon. Chapter 2. Evolution. Truth or Fiction? We come from the water, living in the water, go back to the water, turn the world around. Harry Belafonte. A whale-watching trip in New England surprised me with persuasive evidence for evolution. A few months after my evolution debate with Brian, my nephew Ben was getting married in Boston. We arrived the day before the wedding, with time for a whale-watching trip in Boston Harbor. Sure enough, we spotted some whales. It was my first time doing such a thing, and it was a joy to see the sun sparkle gloriously on the water as our boat bounced through early September waves. I visited the Whale Center of New England next door and discovered one of the most compelling cases for evolution I've seen. The center had mounted a large whale skeleton for visitors to examine. The exhibit mentioned something I'd read about, vestigial whale feet. Near the back of their bodies, whales have a very small set of bones, not even attached to the skeleton, which are obviously a set of minimally formed feet and legs. I'd never been quite sure what to think about whale feet. Now I was confronted with this real-life skeleton. Sure enough, this whale had a tiny set of legs folded up near the back of its body, disconnected from the rest of its skeleton, and suspended in the flesh, remnants of an earlier ancestor having been some other type of mammal. If animals have body parts and extra hardware they don't need, where did that leave me and my engineer's intuition about living things? A human engineer, if designing a whale from scratch, would leave out the feet entirely rather than include very small feet tucked inside the whale's body. At this point in my journey, I preferred the intelligent design view of the world. But the exhibit regarded the whale legs as evidence of evolution. The evolution beast had its claws in my skin and wouldn't let go. As I drove back to my hotel, I pondered whale feet from an engineer's point of view. I asked myself, what would it have to take for the whale's DNA to still hang on to those legs, but make them so much smaller? There was something very, very interesting about this. The whale's entire leg assembly was shrunken down, apparently to scale. The legs on each side were symmetrical, and it looked like all the parts necessary to function were still there, just smaller. It was like someone twisted the size of legs dial from 10 down to 1. That in itself is a very tricky engineering problem. How do you hang on to most of the instructions but change some of the directions to make the legs smaller? If this had been a computer program, rewriting that program to build smaller legs would be no trivial task. I thought of the welders and robotic assembly lines at the Ford plant on the south side of Chicago. What would it take for those robots to start making a tiny little spare tire instead of a regular sized one and install it in the trunk? Everything would have to scale down in proportion. The rims, tires, nuts, and bolts, which means a lot of precision programming. Now that I thought about it, shrinking the legs and retaining them was remarkable all by itself. The genome didn't just delete lines of code and make the legs disappear entirely. It looked as though the adaptive program was trying to hang on to valuable inventory. It seemed almost conservative, as though it knew it might need those legs at some time in the future and so resisted deleting them. Who knows? Maybe those bones still serve some unseen function now. 
an evolutionary algorithm that could hang on to those legs, compressing them to occupy minimal space and resources, that seemed anything but purposeless and accidental. Did an adaptive program possess some kind of intelligence of its own? Now I was really intrigued. I decided to investigate the idea of seemingly unnecessary parts further. Mole rat eye covered with skin. The blind mole rat's eye is completely covered with skin. In theory, the eye could be functional, but since it's covered by skin, it can only sense dark and light. It doesn't make sense that this species would be uniquely designed this way. It would not seem that a designer with infinite resources would put a fully functional eye underneath a flap of skin instead of fabricating a simpler eye. Therefore, it seems as though the mole rat is an assemblage of off-the-shelf parts, not a unique and special creation. To most people, an evolutionary explanation would seem more sensible. If whales and blind mole rats are descended from other mammals, then it might seem to follow that humans are merely primates. Lots of people find this offensive. It's embarrassing enough to admit that dad was an alcoholic, let alone announce that great-great-great-grandpa was a baboon. It's one of the many reasons why religious people don't want to believe in evolution. Has anyone not heard some preacher or pundit rail against this? LifeSite News reported an effort by the London Zoo to reinforce the evolutionary view. In this very embarrassing zoological charade, three brawny men and five shapely women have volunteered to strut around for a few days in their underwear and strategically placed fig leaves in an enclosure that was once the home of one or another species of bears. In the immortal words of the zoo spokeswoman, the purpose of the exercise is that seeing people in a different environment among other animals teaches members of the public that the human is just another primate. Not to be outdone by those who object to ape ancestry are those who point out our capacity for cruelty. Eric Hofer, the American philosopher and writer, said, The pre-human creature from which man evolved was unlike any other living thing in its malicious viciousness towards its own kind. Humanization was not a leap forward, but a groping toward survival. Should we be offended at the idea of evolution? The answer for me came from a very strange place. Sex advice for insects. Sex advice from a praying mantis. Brian brought home a hilarious book called Dr. Tatiana's Sex Advice to All Creation, a biology book written like a newspaper advice column. One chapter starts like this. Dear Dr. Tatiana, I'm a European praying mantis, and I've noticed I enjoy sex more if I bite my lover's heads off first. It's because when I decapitate them, they go into the most thrilling spasms. Somehow, they seem less inhibited, more urgent. It's fabulous. Do you find this too? Signed, I like him headless in Lisbon. Dr. Tatiana replies, Some of my best friends are man-eaters, but between you and me, cannibalism isn't my bag. I can see why you like it, though. Males of your species are boring lovers. Beheading them works wonders. Whereas a headless chicken rushes wildly about, a headless mantis thrashes in a sexual frenzy. In her own funny way, Dr. Tatiana makes it obvious why so many people are so squeamish about evolution. If all we are is animals, we can merrily rationalize every conceivable form of aberrant, grotesque, inhumane behavior. But think about this for a minute. 
Can we ever justify our own behavior by claiming that animals do it too? Dr. Tatiana's book makes it plain. Of course not. You could use her book to rationalize almost anything. Ancestry and morality are different questions. The first deals with survival of the fittest, and the second with the survival of all. There's an episode of The Big Bang Theory where Leonard is having a moral crisis. Leonard, I'm having a moral crisis. Sheldon, well, if it is of any help, I have read all the great moral philosophers, including Dr. Seuss. Leonard, oh, what the hell. I am supposed to go out with that girl from the comic book store, Alice, but I do not know if I should, because I am going out with Priya, but she is in India. Sheldon, all right, so the topic at hand is sexual fidelity. Probably we won't be relying on Seuss here. Although, one fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish might be surprisingly applicable. Go on. Leonard, well... They say at the end of your life, you will regret the things you didn't do more than the things that you did, and I am pretty sure that Alice is the stuff I want to do. Sheldon, you know, the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche believed that morality is just a fiction used by the herd of inferior human beings to hold back the few superior men. Leonard, that actually does help. Sheldon, it's worth noting that he died of syphilis. We humans are forever trying to escape the clutches of our own animal instincts. It's a defining quality of what makes us human and different from all other species. All laws, morals, and ethical standards exist to protect the weak from the strong, to save us from savagery so that more than just the strongest survive. A society that is not Darwinian is the very definition of civilization. Whenever we talk about living in an evolved society, one that rejects slavery, cares for the sick, the old and the poor, a world where we helped handicapped people get jobs, a world that is kinder and gentler, the word evolved means the exact opposite of what it means in Darwinism. If you're looking for a place to ground human rights and dignity, modern ideas about equality and social justice, you won't find it in biology. If you wish to rid the world of racism, Mr. Darwin will be of no help. These are moral questions. That's why the moral struggles of humanity and the engineering problem of evolution are separate domains. Sure, animals live in groups and share resources with each other much like we do, but there are clearly many situations where altruism has high cost with little or no direct benefit to everyone else. Biology cannot tell you why taxpayers should support a sick stranger a thousand miles away or why the opportunity to vote is a sacred human right. Because morality doesn't come from biology or chemistry or the sexual fantasies of praying mantises, I couldn't see any good reason to be offended by common ancestry. In fact, I found the idea tantalizing. Hint, spirituality is the thing that distinguishes us from animals. It doesn't come from our bodies. It comes from our spirits. See Appendix 2 for a much more complete treatment of this sensitive and important topic. Once we're able to separate the two, morality and science, we're able to look objectively at the evidence. Evidence for evolution, genes shared by humans and primates. There are small bits of data, pseudogenes, that are shared only by humans and primates and found nowhere else in the animal kingdom. Let's take a sentence in the U.S. Declaration of Independence as an analogy. Out of all the copies of the Declaration, suppose you found two separate examples that both read, 
We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, literacy, and the pursuit of happiness. You might interpret the change as a spelling error, or you could ask why the person copying it chose literacy instead of liberty. Maybe the editor was a librarian. Either way, for both copies to leave out the B-E-R-T and insert T-E-R-A-C instead is highly conspicuous. You would logically conclude that both versions were copied from the same document. The odds are virtually zero that different sources of these passages would include the same alteration when everything else about the copies was exactly like the original. You would not assume they were two separate copying errors that happened to be identical. The pseudogenes that humans and primates exclusively share are identical mobile DNA elements. See chapter 11 on transposition. This is like finding multiple, unique, identical passages in two ancient documents. A historian would naturally conclude common ancestry. This does not prove humans and primates had a common ancestor. They also could have had a common designer. If you're wary of making comparisons between humans and primates, I understand. But, as I explained, common ancestry didn't offend me. As an engineer, I found myself intrigued with common ancestry because it presented an utterly fascinating engineering problem. If God made whales and other animals with identical parts, that was one thing. But if living things had the innate ability to change their own genomes and generate new species, if the whale's ancestors had the capacity to transform into another species, that was fantastically more impressive. If evolution were true, God could teach us more principles of engineering through nature than if it weren't true. If evolution makes you uncomfortable, trust me, I understand. But stick with me, because this will make more sense as the story unfolds. Yes, I am suggesting that you can understand God better by studying evolution. Returning to the whales. As the whale continues to adapt, could it use those feet yet again? Is the whale saving its feet for a rainy day? The whale's feet? The blind mole rat's eyes and the shared DNA sequences between species were powerful evidence for some form of evolution. As I continued to research this, it became clear to me that evolution most definitely appeared to have happened. But how? I started hunting through a pile of research from the 1950s to today. I resolved to find some kind of mechanism that would explain it all.